Okay, well, go ahead and be turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 is where we're going to start at tonight. So just a bit of a review on where we were last week. We were uh, looking at the Israelites getting out of Egypt, and we began by discussing a little bit about the compromises that Pharaoh offered to Moses whenever uh, he came to Pharaoh with the message and said, uh, God says, let my people go. And so Pharaoh offered up compromises, and those compromises parallel uh, what we face whenever we uh, we want to follow the Lord, whenever we want to serve the Lord. Uh, the devil in the world offers us compromises, tries to keep us away from God. And so Pharaoh's compromises that he offered was... Worship God in the land. So don't leave the world, but go ahead and just kind of try to straddle the fence. Try to play both sides. Uh, then he said, well, you can go, but don't go too far. Don't want you to be a fanatic about this. And then he said, you can go, but don't uh, don't take your family with you. And then don't let it affect your uh, livestock, your family, your, your job, your finances, all these other things. And so over and over there were... Uh, compromises that he was trying to get them uh, go ahead and uh, serve God but not really just enough to salve your conscience basically and that's what the, the devil would have us to believe today and would keep us lukewarm would keep us from actually serving God and then after they finally did get free of Pharaoh and out of Egypt they were headed toward the Red Sea and Pharaoh has second thoughts he has regrets of letting them go and so whenever that happens, he uh, takes off chasing after the Israelites and he pins them between his armies and the Red Sea. And uh, we can see with that that the devil won't let us go uh, without a fight. Even whenever we do start serving God and living for him, he's still going to, uh, the devil's still going to be pursuing us, chasing after us and trying to knock us off course. He'll cause us to have fear and doubts. He'll cause us to... Uh, second guess our decision that we've made, but we find that God was leading them. He was directing them and he brought them to a place where they were forced to exercise their faith. Yeah. They came to the end of themselves once again, and it wasn't just uh, at the Red Sea. It was over and over as they were in uh, the wilderness that God brought them to places where they were unable to do anything for themselves. Mm -hmm. And life will bring us there many times and the purpose behind that is that God wanted them to look to him. He wanted them to serve him. He wanted uh, them to trust him. And so whenever they came to the Red Sea, uh, they were trapped. There was nowhere they could turn. They couldn't swim across. They couldn't fight Pharaoh's army. They couldn't overcome of their own. They looked around. They took stock and they said, we are stuck. We are trapped. We have no hope. There is no good that we can see coming out of this. And so they were forced to look to God, and God brought about salvation for them. And so they found out that God was able to perform what they couldn't. And so two applications of that for us is we can't save ourselves. And so it is up to him to save us. We have to look to him in faith to bring about salvation. But after we are saved, because they were let out of Egypt already, right? After they were let out of Egypt, after they were saved they still needed to be looking toward God. And so whenever we have this idea that God kind of turns us loose and expects us to perform or to do all of these things by our own power and our own ability, 
after we get saved, we are completely off the mark. Because still, even after being saved, without him, we can do nothing. He's not just sitting back and saying, okay, let's see what you can do. He's saying, I still want you to follow me. I still want you to trust me. I still want to look you to look toward me because you can't even live the Christian life by your own power and your own strength. And so they get to the Red Sea and they are forced to trust God. And God works miraculously. He parts the waters. They go across on dry ground and God makes a way when they saw no way. They uh, cross to the other side and God defeats the enemy in front of them. There was no way they could defeat the enemy. There was no way they could have uh, overcame Pharaoh, but God could. And so all of the things that are uh, chasing us and after us and attacking us and giving us doubts and fears and worries, if we are trying to overcome those of our own strength, we're going to be in bad shape. But if we turn to God, he can bring about deliverance in those things. It just sometimes doesn't happen as quickly as we'd like for it to. It doesn't happen in the timing or the way. Because, honestly, the Israelites would have loved if God wouldn't have ever put them in that place where they were pinched between Pharaoh and the Red Sea. Right? It would have been great if he would have just led them around it, or if he would have uh, made their sea part as they were approaching it, and before they ever realized there was a problem, it was already solved, right? That's how we'd like for it to happen. It's just like we walk up to it and the doors open up. But sometimes God makes us stand in front of a locked door for a while, waiting for him to make a way. And so he did that. And I, I said last week that if, uh, if it wasn't for the Red Sea, if it wasn't for them getting in that position, they would have thought they did it themselves. If God would have led them an easy route, if God wouldn't have put them in a place where they were forced to trust him, then they would have thought they did it themselves. And so after the Red Sea, we looked at several different other times. There was times whenever they didn't have water. And they started accusing uh, Moses of just leading him out there to die. So there wasn't enough graves in Egypt. So he brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness. After they seen clearly that God was the one that led them out. And so their faith was quick to waver, even after all that they'd seen God do. And so whenever they didn't have water, God at one point made the bitter water sweet. Another time he made water come whenever there was no water, made water come out of a rock. Rocks don't tend to have much water, right? Um, he caused, uh, caused them to find a place at one time that had uh, kind of like an oasis of many palm trees, and they camped there for a long time. And so God led them along the way. Uh, he gave them victories over their enemies. He brought them to impossible circumstances. And time and again, uh, God proved that he could be trusted, that he could take care of them, that he could provide for them, that he could protect them if they would put themselves in his hand. But in our study that we've been doing, we've been uh, looking at salvation and Jesus in the Old Testament. And with all of these things that we saw happening, it, it tells us that God doesn't want our works. He wants our faith. God doesn't want us to depend on self. He's not impressed by the things that we accomplish by our own power. He is uh, desiring a relationship with us. And he's desiring us to look to him in faith. He wants to be our God and for us to be his people. He wants to be our father and us to be his children. He wants to take care of us. He wants that relationship in that way. And just as it would be, uh, it would be wrong for the father to sit back and expect his children to earn his love or to earn a position in the family, that's the same way with God and his relationship with us. We don't earn a position 
He chooses us. He extends to us the offer of adoption, of family, and it's up to us whether or not we accept his offer. Yeah. Right? Excuse me. And so it's by faith from the beginning to the end, and we see that uh, over and over throughout these passages. We see that God is providing, God is protecting, and he's wanting to get that point across to us because all religion keeps telling us that it's up to us to do and to perform and to earn, and we see all throughout the Bible from the very beginning that there is no way that we can do, that we can be, that we can earn, that we can somehow perform at a high enough level that we get by. But everywhere we find in the scripture, it brings mankind to the place that they have no choice but to throw themselves on the mercies of God, to look to him for guidance, for protection, for provision, and all these things. This is what God is wanting. And so with that, there's no difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, Testament. Besides in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to Jesus and we're looking backward. Okay, and we're going to see that even more today. But anyway... If any of this was by their merit, by their works, the Israelites failed miserably. Just as we talked about already, that whenever they came to the Red Sea, they murmured, they complained, and they said, we're stuck. Mm -hmm. Whenever they didn't have water, they said, God failed us. Whenever they even wanted to kill Moses, right? Right. Whenever they didn't have food, we're going to starve to death. We'd been better off with the leeks, onions, and garlics back down in Egypt, right? And so that doesn't seem to me like a picture of some good, godly, deserving bunch of people. It was a bunch of struggling, very weak in their faith because, okay, if you start getting in the idea of, well, my faith isn't strong enough. Well, they had enough faith to where God led them out, right? But they didn't have enough faith to trust Him every day. Their faith was still very weak, very anemic, wasn't it? Yeah. And so we're going to see that continuing as we get into this passage today. But what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be looking at the law. Okay? We'll be looking at the law because this is what many people will point to. They'll say, in the Old Testament, people were saved by keeping the law. And some people still attempt to get saved by keeping the law. Right? Yeah. We find Jesus was talking to uh, the one man, and he says, what, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? You remember him? And so Jesus names off several of the laws, and the man says, all these have I kept from my youth up, yet what do I lack? He says, I've been a very good person, but I know there's still something missing. So in his mind, in his estimation, I've kept these laws, I've done all these things, but there's still something missing. He knew that it wasn't going to cut it. Even his good works wasn't cutting it as good as he thought that he was. And Jesus tells him, sell all that you have. He was a rich man. He said, sell all that you have. And follow me. And he left uh, very sad and dejected because he was a very rich man and he didn't want to sell the things that he had. So I was just thinking on that. I know I'm getting a little off topic maybe. But I was just thinking on that with the rich young ruler there. Whenever Jesus told him, sell all you have and follow me, why did Jesus start telling him the law and uh, referring him back to the law in that time? Because we know that no one is saved by the law, right? Mm-hmm. Why did Jesus refer him back to the law? Okay. Well, Jesus knew the heart and the thoughts of everybody, so that's very possible. 
I have two different thoughts. Okay? And you all can evaluate and tell me what you think of it. Okay? One thing that I've always believed was whenever he uh, lists off the laws, he leaves off the ones that the man has trouble with, right? Because the man is rich, so he doesn't say anything about coveting. He doesn't say anything about uh, uh, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Idolatry. He doesn't say those things. He says, uh, do no murder and things like that. He says, well, I've never killed anyone. I haven't stole anything. And so the man says, I think I'm okay. But whenever Jesus told him, sell all you have and follow me, then it brought out the places where he broke the law, didn't it? He says, no, sorry, I can't sell what I have and follow you because these things are more important to me than what God is, right? He had some idols in his life. Had some covetousness in his life. And then the other thing is I believe that it could have been a bit of a test for him because it is a test of faith. Did the man believe that Jesus was the Son of God? If he did, wouldn't you believe all? Wouldn't you sell all? Wouldn't you give away all to follow him? Yeah, there's a lot of them that did. Look at Matthew, right? He was a wealthy man and he left all. Zacchaeus, he left his very uh, uh, lucrative career and he repaid all that he had taken by uh, dishonesty, right? And so those are my two different thoughts on it, that either maybe it was him pointing to where, uh, where the rich young ruler was guilty of breaking the law, or it could have been pointing to the fact that the man didn't have faith that Jesus actually was who he said he was. He says, I want to earn, I want to do something that brings back his motives, right? What good thing must I do? And there's no good thing that you must do to inherit eternal life. You have to be perfect. And so it brings him to the place where he realizes that he needs to believe in Jesus for one and that he has broken the law for the other, right? So that's a couple of the things that we're going to be getting into and looking at with the law, the purpose behind the law. Because I said, there's many people today who still think that in the Old Testament, people were saved by works. In the New Testament, they're saved by faith. Or they will continue to mix works with faith even in the New Testament times. There's entire religions that's founded upon that. So that's the direction that we're going today. And so in Exodus chapter number 19... Uh, they are three months removed from Egypt, okay? Three months from the Red Sea, three months from the plagues, and they make it to a place called Mount Sinai, okay? And this is where God is going to give them the law. This is where he's going to give them the priesthood. This is where he's going to give them the pattern for the tabernacle, okay? And so we'll go ahead and read in chapter 19. It says, In the third month, when the children of Israel are going forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai, for they were departed from uh, Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you out unto myself. So this is the premise for what he's going to be saying. He says, you have seen what I can do. You have seen what I have done for you. You've seen what I've done to the people of Egypt. You've seen how I've protected you, how I've brought you out of that place. He says, I brought you out on eagles' wings. 
and I have brought you unto myself. And so he says, look at what I have done for you so far. And so verse number five, he says, now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all the words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And so what we find here is God has talked to Moses and he says, tell these people they have seen who I am, what I've done, how I've taken care of them, that I've brought them out to myself and I have a purpose and I have a plan for them. And he says, if they will obey me, if they will keep the words of my covenant, then they are going to be a peculiar treasure unto me and they are going to be a kingdom of priests. Okay, what would be the purpose of them being a kingdom of priests? What's the purpose of a priest? A leader. A leader? What's there? Okay. You're on the right track. Okay. Well, as far as today, for the most part, priests are seen as being the head of the religion. Uh, in the New Testament, the priest had corrupted the office to where they were the head of the religion, yeah. right? But what we find that a priest actually does is they bridge the gap between man and God, uh, right? They are the go-between. They are the mediator. They are the intercessor. And so they stand between God and man to speak to God on man's behalf and man on God's behalf, Right? Or it's been said that the prophet spoke to man on God's behalf and the priest spoke to God on man's behalf, right? Yeah. So that's kind of the, the position there. And so he says Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. That is his desire for Israel. So if the entire nation of Israel were to be a kingdom of priests, who were they going between? Okay, God and the nations, God and the world, right? So that's what God has told the people of Israel. I am calling you out. I brought you out of Egypt, and you are going to be my representative unto the nations. He says, uh, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So your whole nation is going to be set apart. So if they are kingdom priests, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, then what is the purpose that God has planned for the nation of Israel? Work with me here. Sorry. I know we got a couple distractions. They're okay, but... They were his representatives to the world. God didn't just have one group of people, and he says, I'm happy to just have Israel, and the rest of the world can go to hell. Right? That's not what he was after. But he says, Israel is going to be my representatives. They're going to be my intercessors. They're going to be the ones that are going to be 
uh, going out and being witnesses to the world of me. And so essentially what we find today is that the job, the position that he had for Israel was very close to what the church is doing today or what they're supposed to be doing, right? Now, did Israel become a kingdom of priests? They never did, right? Because they found themselves... Just a brief interruption. Right? Maybe she's lacking sleep today. She'll be okay. But anyway, what we find in this is that the people of Israel were supposed to be representatives of God before the nations. They were to be peculiar. That means separate to God, set aside to Him, not weird, but His and His alone. So they were to be dedicated to Him and they were to be representing him to the nations because God's desire was to uh, to bring the world to himself, right? Yeah. And so he tells them here, if you will obey me, if you'll keep my covenant, then this is what I'm going to make you into. This is essentially the equivalent of the New Testament whenever he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is what he's telling them. And so... This is our onset. This is our very beginning of the giving of the law. So if we just kind of put this in context, God has already led them out of bondage. He's already led them out of Egypt, out of a type of the world, right? He has redeemed them by the blood of the lambs on the day of Pentecost, or not Pentecost, on the day of Passover. He has baptized them through the Red Sea, Right? And now they are being called apart to him as a peculiar people to be priests, to be representatives of him to the world. If. Did you catch the if that was in there? In verse number five. He says, now therefore, if. If you'll do these things. Mm -hmm. And so there is an if. He says, okay, you are to do these things. You are to obey me. But it doesn't say, if you do these things, you will be saved. If you do these things, you will have life. If you do these things, then you will be my people and I will accept you. It says, if you do these things, then you will be able to fulfill my purpose for you in my plan for this world. Right? And so that sets us up for a completely different perspective for the law and what the purpose of the law was. The purpose of the law was never for salvation. It was never to redeem them. It was never to bring them uh, into God's uh, into God's family or into his uh, whatever you want to call it there. But instead, he says, if you keep my commands, then you're going to be a peculiar people. You're going to be a holy people. You're going to be a separate people. You're going to be a called out people. There is going to be a stark contrast, a great difference between you and the world which you live in to which they can see who I am. They can relate to me and they can be shown to me as you are following my precepts. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
Sounds very similar. And so they were saved by faith. They were kept by faith. It was by God's grace and by his mercy. And God desired to use them to reach the nations. Simple enough, right? He's still going to use the Jews to reach nations, by the way, in the time of uh, the tribulation, whenever there's going to be 144,000 Jews that are going to be witnesses out into all the world after the church is gone. So he's still going to call them to do that, but he puts this caveat, this if. I've got great plans for you. I want to use you mightily if you'll keep my commandments, if you'll keep my covenants. And you notice before he ever even reveals to them what his commands and covenants are, what's their response? Verse number eight, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken will we do, or we will do. Before he's ever even laid out the covenant, before he's ever given them the commandments, they said, yeah, God, whatever you say, we're going to do it. That's kind of an uh, ill-advised, isn't it? And so they had in mind here already that they were able of their own abilities, by their own power, to perform whatever God had in store for them. They said, yeah, God, we got it covered. Count on us. That's still kind of our, uh, our attitude today, isn't it? And we're just about as ill-advised as what they are because how well do they perform? Very poorly, right? And so they thought they had it all under control. Yep, sure, we can do it. We can please God. We can do all these things. We'll impress him. He'll be happy with us. And so in the rest of chapter number 19, I'm not going to read it, but in the rest of it, God tells Moses to prepare the people for God to speak to them. He says, go down and have them sanctified, have them set apart, have them cleansed and ready. And on the third day, I'm going to speak to them out of the cloud and out of the fire. And they're going to know that I am God. They're going to hear my voice. And they're going to know that I am his, or that Moses, excuse me, that Moses is God's mouthpiece. So they'll continue to trust Moses and follow him as he intercedes between them and God. Okay? And so we come to chapter number 20. And I'll go ahead and read at least part of chapter 20 here. And it says in verse 1, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I am the Lord, for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle or the stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Uh, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the, upon the land which uh, the Lord thy God giveth thee. 
Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not the Lord, or let not God speak with us, lest we die. And so the Lord has spoken from the mountain, uh, thunderings and lightnings and trumpets and all kinds of stuff going on. And the people are afraid of him. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? And so they needed to know that God was real. They needed to have a respect for God. And God is going to be revealing his holiness to them. Okay? They've been in Egypt for 400 years. They've been surrounded by wickedness and idolatry and all forms of corruption. They have been uh, defiled by it. We find that Lot, just in the short amount of time that he was in Sodom, that his uh, soul was vexed by their filthy conversation. So imagine the people who had been born and raised and spent all their time in Egypt, how messed up their thinking would be. And so God says, in order for me to make you a... A peculiar treasure, a nation or a kingdom of priests, I'm going to have to instruct you and teach you and show you what righteousness and holiness is. I am going to need to show you who I am and my characteristics and my traits. I'm going to need to teach you these things so that you can be my people and I can be your God. Right. And so this is instructive to them. And so anyway, he gives them the what we refer to as the Ten Commandments. And this is basically the uh, Cliff Notes version. This is the, the summarized version of, uh, of the law. The law contains 613 uh, different laws, but they can be summarized in those 10. Each of them will fall under one of those categories, okay? And Jesus boils it down even further in the New Testament and breaks it down into two commandments. What are the two commandments Jesus says? Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. And what's the first one? Okay, so a combination of those two. So uh, what Emily was saying, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, and thy strength, right? And the second one is likened to it, love thy neighbor as thyself. And he says, upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. And so he said, essentially, if you were able to do these two, love your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself, then you are going to be keeping the rest of the law. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to commit adultery, you're not going to steal, you're not going to covet, you're not going to bear false witness, right? And if you love God above all things, then you're going to desire to keep all of his laws, right? You're not going to be building idols. You're not going to be bowing down to them. You're not going to be taking his name in vain. You're going to be prioritizing the things of God. You're going to be remembering all these different things because you love the Lord and you love your neighbor. So this is what he's boiled it all down to. Now, here's the big question. Has there ever been anyone on the face of this planet other than Jesus that have kept the laws? If we just go to the Ten Commandments, just the ones that, not the 613, just the 10, what would be your scorecard? 
How well have you done at keeping the Ten Commandments? I just want you to think. I don't want you to answer. Because if you start going through them, uh, it tells us that we're not to... Uh, let me just go back here for just a second. The very first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You say, well, I don't have any other gods. Well, a god is whatever you worship. Whatever you have esteemed or whatever you have assigned value to. If you have valued anything above God, you have had gods before him. And I have a feeling that most of us have done that. Some people have done it with their jobs, some with their possessions, some with their families. Right? You know, whenever they, they talk about uh, love and marriage and uh, husbands and wives and husbands worshiping the ground their wives walk on, that's, that's a real thing. Plenty of people will put their partner uh, or their children or any of these things above God. Hobbies and all kinds of different, they'll put before God. And so they say, these things are more important. I have esteemed them because that's what worship means, assigning worth, worship. Okay? So if something is more valuable to you than God, you have made a God of it. And I venture to say most of us have been guilty of that from time to time. Right? Um... Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or likeness of anything that is under the heaven above or the earth beneath. So making images. That includes trying to make images of God, of apostles, of the Virgin Mary, of anything else. God never intended for us to have a physical representation of anything that we worship, including Him. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And if we have statues that we bow down to... And that's a common thing here, right? Yeah. If there's statues, if there's likenesses that we have made, images that we have made, of the even of the God that we worship, then we've broken that one. Uh, taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Have you ever used God's name flippantly? Used his name whenever you weren't actually referring to him or talking about him? You hear that daily here, don't you? Adding his name to a curse word saying it irreverently, even the term, oh, for the love of God. Are you actually referring to God or are you just using his name without thought? That's in vain, isn't it? So we're only up to number three and I'm probably guilty of two of three. I don't know that I've ever had any images, right? We continue on that one. Um, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That one's one that's not been carried over into the New Testament. It's the, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy is the only one that isn't repeated in the New Testament because Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest, mm -hmm. right? We have left off of all of our works and in him is all of our hopes and, and so he is our Sabbath, okay? We have our rest in him. We have Sunday is not the Sabbath, but Sunday is the Lord's day, Okay? But anyway, so remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Uh, honor thy father and mother. Doesn't necessarily mean to obey them, but to honor them. And that doesn't end whenever you're an adult. That, that's throughout the rest of your life. You honor your father and your mother. Um, thou shalt not kill. Oh, I've never killed anybody. But the Bible says if you hate your brother without cause, then you've already committed murder in your heart. Okay, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
right? Well, I've never done that, but it says that if you have looked at a woman lustfully, then you've already committed adultery in your heart, right? Um, let's see, what else we got? We got up to adultery, right? I should not bear false witness. You ever lie? I don't have to spend too much time there, right? I should not bear false witness. Um, I'm missing another one. And then there's thou shalt not covet. What is it? Yeah, thou shalt not steal. How did I forget that? <laughs> anyway, thou shalt not steal. Is there a value assigned to that? Do you have to steal at least so much of something for you to be guilty of that one? I know I stole a pocket candy whenever I was a kid. The grocery store had these bins that you could like buy it by weight. You just go by and you just pick one out, stick it in your pocket, and don't tell your parents. I talked to a guy here one time, and he says, oh, I've never stole anything in my life. I said, not even a piece of candy? No, and in the same conversation, he said he regularly stole stuff from his uh, from his job, but that didn't count because it was a business and not an individual. <laughs> Justify yourself any way you want. But anyway... Uh, thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not uh, thou shalt not covet. That is a, a desire for something that you have no right to, either something that you haven't worked for, that you haven't earned, that you haven't deserved, that uh, is not yours. Okay, and so in that, honestly, I wouldn't score very well. And for anyone to say that they kept the Ten Commandments, they have deceived themselves, right? <laughs> And so if we think that keeping the law is a means of salvation, the conclusion that we have to come to is that there is no way possible that any human being is ever going to keep the law. And that's exactly the purpose behind it. Because God is showing us his holiness. He is showing us his righteousness. And he is showing us that we are unable to live up to his standard. And so what that causes us to do is we come to God and say, I can't do it. And he says, you're right. Isn't that right? And so getting back to our, our text here, as we're looking through this. God gives them the Ten Commandments. He expands on it in the judgments that we'll, we could continue reading through the next couple chapters. And starts talking about how to govern themselves and how to be a peculiar people. Talks about how to uh, punish uh, different faults and failures and things like that. Things that would be more along the lines of civil laws. Okay, And so he's kind of laying down a groundwork here through probably about 70 some different commands over the next few chapters. And telling them how to function as a society under God. This is a theocracy, okay? And so he gives them these things, and they agree to it, and they say, oh, we're going to do all of this. This is going to be great. We're going to perform wonderfully. Chapter number 24, verse number 3, the people said, all the words the Lord has said, we will do. Verse number 7, all the words that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. So that makes three times they said, we're going to do it all, God. We're going, we got this covered. Even after they've heard the Ten Commandments. Yep, no problem. Right? And so you think, okay, well, the people of Israel are doing good. They're going to keep the commandments. They're going to be a stellar example to the world. They're going to be saved by their good works. And we come to Exodus chapter 32. Anyone know what happens in Exodus chapter 32? They make the molten calf. 
I'll just go back to verse or to chapter twenty nine for just a second. God is giving them the the plans for the tabernacle, for the priesthood, all these different things. Uh, chapter twenty nine, verse forty five, it says, "And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God." So God says, "I am holy." And I want you to be a holy people, and I'm going to dwell in your midst. I want to be amongst my creation. I'm going to have a tabernacle. My presence is going to be with you. That's pretty incredible that God wants to have something to do with us, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's making all of these things that he's telling Moses here. Um, he has Moses to come up. Uh, it's during the, this time Moses is up on top of the mountain for 40 days, right? They have just said three times, all the Lord has said we will do. They have the Ten Commandments, okay, that we just went over a minute ago. And so Moses is going for 40 days, and in chapter 32, yeah, 32, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto them, Up, make us gods which shall go before us, for as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And so 40 days, they have seen the plagues in Egypt. They have seen what God did to Pharaoh into the land of Egypt. They have seen the Red Sea. They've seen the Passover, right? They've seen all these things happen. They heard God's voice from the mountain. They saw the fire and the smoke, the thunder, the voice of a trumpet, They have heard all of these things, and they literally heard the voice of God give them the law. Mm -hmm. They've promised, as I said three times, to obey all of his covenants. And within 40 days, they said, make us false gods. Mm -hmm. Make us a graven image. That's not a real good record, is it? (laughs) And so they have already broken the law. So, once again, if the law was meant to save people, all of Israel is now lost and bound for hell. Yeah. Right? And so no man is saved by the works of the law. No man is saved by the works of the flesh. We are saved by faith. God desires for us to, uh, for us to learn of him, to... Uh, to know him, to have that relationship with him, to be blessed of him, and to be a witness and to be a representative to this world, right? That is his desire for us, and that was his desire for them. And so how does that come about? How is it that we can know him, that we can be blessed of him, and that we can be a witness from him to this world? How does that come about? And so that comes about from obeying his commandments, from following his word, from being obedient to him. Same thing goes for us today. For us as Christians, we are saved by faith. We are kept by his grace. It is not by works that we have done, but where does works come into it? Whenever we are obedient to him, whenever we are following his word, then do we get to know him Then do we fellowship with him? Then do we receive the blessings from him? And then are we effective as being a witness and a representative to this world just as he intended for them to be? So once again, the works of the law were never meant for salvation of anyone. But what the works did do was show them their sin. It was to show them their failures and their shortcomings. 
It was to show them how much they needed God and how unable they were of their own abilities, right? And so whenever they have sinned here, whenever they have worshiped the golden calf, God had every right to wipe them out. I didn't, I didn't uh, read it there earlier, but I think it was in chapter 29 that they actually entered into a blood covenant with God. The blood was sprinkled on the congregation. It was sprinkled on the altar representing God. And a blood covenant meant if we break our end of the deal, then it means death for us. And so they made that vow with God. They said, we will do this. And they entered into the covenant by blood, meaning they were worthy of death whenever they broke the covenant. And so had God had wiped every one of them out, he would have been justified in doing so. They broke their end of the covenant, right? But because of God's nature, because of his mercy, and because of the promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because that's what uh, what Moses petitions him on behalf of. He says, God, you've made these promises. You've made this covenant with those who's went on before us. Yes, they've broke theirs, but you're still indebted to them because you cannot lie. And so God does not wipe them out. He doesn't kill them. And he shows mercy upon them. And he provides for them a means of forgiveness. Right? And so just skipping ahead here, we find in Leviticus, we never really go to the book of Leviticus, do we? We're not going to be in it too much tonight, so you don't have to worry, but just to give you a little bit of an idea here. In the book of Leviticus, in the first five chapters, you want me to summarize five chapters for you real quick? Yeah. Then you'll know what Leviticus is about, right? The first five chapters of the book of Leviticus talks about five different offerings, five different sacrifices. Okay, The first three are sweet savor offerings. They are done voluntarily. Okay, So the first three sacrifices, chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Leviticus, says, okay, the children of God, the children of Israel, have been led out. They've seen the works of God. They've seen God's mercy. They have been recipients of his mercy time and again. And so there's three different offerings that they can offer up to God out of their own free will, out of the desire of their own heart. And the three of those have to do with consecration, with thanksgiving, and with fellowship. We're dedicating ourselves to God. We're thankful for what he has done. We enter into fellowship with him because of who he is. Those are the first three. The last two are not sweet savor sacrifices or offerings. They are not voluntary. They are required under the law. And that is the sin offering and the trespass offering. Okay? And so what God has done is he says, I've given you the law. I've showed you how to be a holy, separate, peculiar people. I've showed you the standard that I have, but you're not going to keep it. You are going to fail. You are going to sin. And so in my mercy, in uh, my goodness, in my love, I'm going to provide a way to cleanse you from your guilt and from the damage that has been done because of your sin. And so that's what these final two uh, sacrifices, these final two offerings are. So the sin offering has to do with absolving of guilt. I have, through my ignorance, I have broken the laws of God, and now I stand guilty before him. So how do I stand before a holy God? Do you notice 
whenever they heard the voice of God coming down out of the mountain, they said, don't speak to us anymore. Speak through Moses because if you speak to us, we're going to die. Right? That was their thought. And so whenever we realize that we've sinned against God, we say, I've messed up. Now what do I do? I am guilty before God. And God says, here's a sacrifice and that you know by faith because I've showed you this, if you trust me, if you trust my word, this is going to mean that your sins are forgiven, the guilt is cleansed, and you know that things are okay between me and you. Okay? The other one is the trespass offering, and it has more to do with instead of the guilt, more than, more than my uh, shame that I feel as a result of my sin, but instead it has to do with uh, the damage that I have caused in my sin. It realizes... I have consequences of my sin. My sin has affected others. My sin has affected uh, God. And so this trespass offering is my sin outwardly, and the sin offering was mine inwardly. Because sin has both parts, right? It affects me. It affects others. And so God has made a way of absolving their guilt and their shame, but also dealing with the consequences of their sin. And so he says, I've given you the law to show you my holiness, to show you who I am, to consecrate you to myself, to make you a peculiar people, you're not going to keep it. But whenever you do fail, whenever you do sin, I'm making a way for you to be cleansed because the wages of sin always has been, always will be death. You have sinned, you deserve death, but I'm going to allow you to offer up a sacrifice. I'm going to allow there to be a substitute that stands on your behalf, and because you have by faith shed that blood, that animal has taken the sins that you have committed upon itself, right? And I am going to allow that to atone for that to cover your sin and so that you will live. That goes back to Adam and Eve, right? Killed the animals, clothed them with the coats of skin, blood had to be shed, all those things, right? So he says, okay, this is my standard. You can't meet it. And whenever you fail to meet it, I have made a way that it can be covered. It can be forgiven. Mm -hmm. And those sacrifices were looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice. It was looking forward to the blood of Jesus Christ, the one that was going to be our substitute. He was going to atone. He was going to cover ultimately once and for all. He was going to pay for our sins and he has done that. And so, as I've stated many times before, no one in their right mind is going to think that a person is equal to a sheep or equal to an ox. They're killing this animal saying, I'm trusting that this is going to be sufficient to cover because God said so. They're trusting because God made a promise and says, I am going to come and work a means of salvation and this is going to hold you over until then. This is going to cover it until my son comes and bleeds and dies and ultimately does away with it. And so they had to over and over and over and over offer up sacrifices. If we skip to Leviticus chapter 16 and 17, which I'm not going to do right now, it has to do with the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a sacrifice to atone for the nation. For all of the people, right? And so all of these sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again, year by year, time after time. These were repeated 
because they weren't sufficient to do away with the sins of mankind. But Jesus came and he offered up himself once and for all. This is why I say in the Old Testament they look forward to Christ. We look back to Christ. But nowhere within the law was it a means to have eternal life. Nowhere was it a means to earn salvation, but instead it was to show us that there was nothing that we could do to earn salvation. And so I want to close by going to two different passages in the New Testament. I know this has been Jesus B.C., but I want to go and look in Hebrews chapter number 10. And the whole chapter is good, but I'm only going to read the first four verses. It says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come. That's pretty interesting in light of what we've been looking at, right? The law was only a shadow of what was to come. There was commandments, but the most important part was there were sacrifices. So for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers, once purged, should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. It could cover it from year to year, but it couldn't take it away. But it showed them there was a price for sin, a price that had to be paid, that blood had to be shed, that there had to be a substitute, and that all pointed to Jesus, the final and perfect lamb. We flip back to Galatians chapter number three. This is a fairly familiar passage of scripture. Galatians 3.24, it says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now, if we look up and figure out what a schoolmaster is, we usually think of that as being a, a teacher, right? Okay. The law was teaching us. Know what a schoolmaster was? Generally, it was a slave, and the slave's job was to see to it that the master's children got to where they were supposed to be. Why well, I was called a schoolmaster is the, the kids needed to have someone over them to make sure they were obedient, make sure that they got to school and got safely home again. Okay? So it made sure that they got where they were supposed to be. So if the law was our schoolmaster, it was to bring us to Jesus, to get us to where we were supposed to be. And so that's what it tells us there in verse... Uh, Number 24, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The schoolmaster brought them unto school. The law brought us unto Christ. And so it pointed out, you are a sinner. You can't be holy. You can't live up to God's standards. There is no hope that you have outside of God. But look, God provided a means, a sacrifice. And so you look unto God for the cleansing of your sins and the forgiving of your sins. And so that was the whole purpose of it. And it says, but after that the faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. After you've gotten to school, there's no reason for him to stick around. You got to where you're supposed to go. So after we come to Jesus, there's no need for the law. Yes, there are things that we can learn from it. 
there are lessons that we can learn. Yes, the Ten Commandments are uh, good principles for us to live by, but we're not going out and paying attention to whether or not our uh, clothes are made of diverse fabrics and putting battlements around our roofs, right? Keeping to the dietary guidelines, right? And so that was the purpose of the law. It brought us to Christ. It showed us our need for a Savior and God's provision for a Savior. And so no one's ever been saved by the works of the law. Never. No one. They're still not. And so early on I said that there are still many people today who think that there is salvation by the law or by our works. And it comes from a misunderstanding of Scripture. It comes from a failure to separate the Old from the New Testament. It comes from a failure to understand the purpose of the law. And so what we find today is, for instance, within the Catholic Church, got to pick on them, right? They are basically following after the same things that we're finding in the Old Testament. They are failing to separate the difference between the church and Israel. They still have a priesthood. They still have their religious dogma that they follow. They have not necessarily the law of the Old Testament, but they have their laws, their rulings, their different things that you must do. And what happens whenever you fail to keep the religious dogma? What happens whenever you fail to keep their laws? You need a priest. You have to confess. All right? And rather than offering up a blood sacrifice, you make penance, right? None of which do you find in the Bible, but they're using the pattern to form their own religion from it. And they're saying, okay, you have failed to reach our criteria, so you have sinned. And as a result of your sin, you have to confess it to the priest, and you have to pay a penalty. By the way, the sacrifices weren't paying a penalty. It was showing that there needed to be bloodshed in my place and that Jesus is the one that ultimately shed that blood. So in that religious system, where's the place of Jesus at? Why did Jesus die if I still have to pay for my sins? Right? And so we see that they're taking principles from the Old Testament, sprinkling in a little bit of things from the New Testament, making their own mismatch of a religion there, bastardized religion, between different concepts from both, without ever really realizing that the entire story of the Bible is man has sinned and God has made a way back to him and it's by grace through faith. From the beginning all the way to the end, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot be good enough. We can't pay for our own sins. We can't do enough works to make up for the sins that we have committed. But instead, we stand guilty before God, and there is no good, no merit on our behalf. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and so we stand before God and say, I can't save me, I have sinned, I have come short, and God says, I have made a way through my Son. Old Testament, they had sacrifices to look forward to it, we now see clearly. We still we now can see what the Old Testament was pointing toward. They were saved by faith. 
in what God has done or what God's going to do. We are saved by faith in what God has already done. So with that, any questions or any comments on what we looked at tonight? Okay, if there's nothing, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll call tonight. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, and we do thank you for the day that you've given us. And Lord, we just praise you for your scriptures, Lord, and how uh, how complete they are, how, Lord, you've woven this same theme from the beginning to the end, and how we see how uh, the Bible is just one story, Lord, and you're revealing yourself to us and showing your love and your care for us and the way that you've provided for us, Lord. And Lord, help us, Lord, to uh, take this and apply it to our lives, to be encouraged by it, Lord, and to know that uh, you love us so much, you've done so much for us, Lord, and Lord, that we'll just continue trusting you and allowing you to work in our lives. And we thank you for all you do and all you want to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.